The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop two-finger zooming and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 457 with guest Sahil Malik, recorded live at the NDC in Norway, Wednesday, June 17, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's considering getting a shiny new eye liver, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We are in Norway at the Norwegian Developers Conference. It's our first year here. It's in a huge football arena, and by football I mean soccer for our American friends. And uh, it's actually got artificial turf on the ground, but they covered it up. Yeah, and uh, the the main hall has all of the vendor spaces in it, and then they've created rooms of a sort by using curtains wrapped around some of the seats in the stadiums. It's a, it's really interesting layout. Yeah, I've never seen I've never seen a show kind of like I mean I've never seen a stadium kind of like this. Uh, there's what they've got is on the outside walls of these rooms, quote unquote, that Richard talked about. They have screens, and inside the rooms, they've got video cameras, and uh, they're projecting the the um, the presenter's desktop onto the screen and their um, and their face. Right, and the attendees that don't want to actually sit in the main part of the room can sit on the outside watching that screen. They've got headphones so they can hear it. And the headphones are all wireless. You just have to get close enough to the room and you start hearing the speaker. It's pretty brilliant, actually. And also, uh, we were talking to the coordinators today, 950 people. Yeah, it's amazing and, and bigger than last year. I think they said it was over 800 last year. So they've grown uh, where everybody else has shrunk. I just think it speaks to, well, what is it about the Scandinavian countries? They're really smart, really smart developers, really focused. This is not a big country. It's like 5 million people, and they have a huge show. I've cracked the code. I know what it is. You want to know what it is? Hit me. They don't give shit away. <laughs> there's no swag. They were giving t-shirts away. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, there's no free content here. You want content, you pay for it. Oh, I, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, yeah. But there is swag. There is swag. So what I'm saying is, at least as far as I know, there aren't free events that rival the pay events. 
And so, you know, if people want to get educated in person, they come to a place like this. Well, and the speakers lineup is unbelievable. We have uh, Bob Martin's here and Michael Feathers and uh, Roy Osharov, Oranini. Hanselman, yeah, Hanselman's here. Ted Neward's here, Hanselman's here, um, Scott Bellware's here. There's just a bunch of people. There's some North American people here, of course. And uh, anyway, let's... Well, uh, you guys are here, too. And Sahil is here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sahil's and here, Richard too. And Richard and Carl are here, too. There were some famous people here. And Sahil is oh. sitting right across the table from him. He's like, All right. uh, hello. And, and Richard. And hello. hello. Well, no, I was really talking about you guys. <laughs> All right. Show's over. Bye. <laughs> Sahil Malik is our guest today. Hi, Sahil. Hello. How are you guys? Doing fine. Uh, man, what do you what do you think of this conference? It's it's quite unique. I love the speaker setup. Like this. I, I I I love it. I mean, I love how they set up the rooms, as you mentioned. And another thing I like about Scandinavian countries in general is how they adopt technology. Yeah. All, all over the, down from our hotel room to like everywhere you go. Yeah, the technology is. Is every and it works. Yeah, yeah. It's ultra gadgety here. I'm really liking that. Everybody, every restaurant or, or any store we've gone into, the the credit card thing is wireless, and it just yeah. goes on and on and on. It's a very fun place, and lots of bandwidth. Yeah, lots yeah. of bandwidth. And there, as you're walking around, there are Twitter monitors. These are LCD TVs that are screens monitors yeah. that constantly display a Twitter feed. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's a Twitter feed that's public or if it's just within a group i'm not sure what it is but it seems to be all focused around ndc yeah yeah it's uh, the hash ndc09 tag on twitter ah well there it is so sahil what are we here talking about today and i, I bet it has something to do with sharepoint yeah we're talking about things that you should know about sharepoint before you start a sharepoint project now this is targeted at Anyone who has not done SharePoint, or if you are already doing it, maybe you'll pick up some pointers too. I would say it is uh, uh, probably going to be useful for either uh, okay. and all sorts of audiences. This is not aimed towards just developers, uh, but basically everyone that may have anything to do with a SharePoint project, the by, delivery of it. By the way, SharePoint is still going strong. And I, I think now, this is what, June 18th as we're recording this? I have seen um, a surge in the last couple of weeks in people who are interested in doing SharePoint projects. And I know this because we actually uh, are asking people who listen to our show who do SharePoint, if they're interested in changing jobs, there's some jobs available in New York. You've heard about this with the Infusion guys. right? And just in the last couple of weeks, Infusion says their business has been picking up and we've had an influx of people that are SharePoint developers that want to go work for them. So I think there's a lot happening just recently. Yeah, I, I have to tend to agree. And I think one of the things is with the economic downturn going on right now, this is a technology that lots of companies already owned but weren't using. And right. now they're they're trying to be more economically efficient. They're dusting this thing off and, and getting to work with it. Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing? How are people using SharePoint now inside of the businesses? Uh, well, two words, what recession, really. Uh, as far as how are they using it, they're using this platform in, in just so many different ways. And that's the beauty of this platform that will scale all the way from an individual to an outside-facing site and everywhere in between. Really? Yeah. So you're saying there really hasn't ever been a slowdown in SharePoint development? At least I haven't experienced it. Right. And, and the people that I know who are good at SharePoint, now it is hard to find people who really know it. But uh, but yes, if you know SharePoint, then, then I haven't really seen a, a slowdown. All right. What is the most important thing that you have to know? To do any kind of SharePoint development. Uh, 
the the first thing i would say is applies to any single project there's a complex mathematical equation that that defines any single software project mm-hmm. and at, and that is what your users can do multiplied by the number of users is equal to your headache right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and oh that's funny i and, like that let me just pause to consider that for a minute <laughs> Ah, that's really good. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, the more features and the more options, the more potential problems. Right. Combined with the number of people, right? Right. You can have lots and lots of features in one guy and the grief isn't that bad. But as soon as you have a few thousand people and lots of features, you're screwed. Exactly. (laughs) And and the thing with SharePoint is out of the box, it is so rich. Right. uh, and, And if you just open it up and and allow your users to use everything in every single scenario, you're creating a support nightmare for yourself. Yeah. So the way I roll out a project is, is that you customize the security levels. You would want to customize the welcome page so it's not SharePointy, but it's an application. So yeah. they're not learning SharePoint. And then you gradually open it up bit by bit and train your users along with it. So the default configuration, which is typical Microsoft, everything is on, is going to lead you down the path of destruction. Well, uh, there are so many default configurations with SharePoint, and each one of them, you can't say everything is on, but I would say too much is on mm. to start with. Okay. So Now, what about, um, before we get into more of this stuff, do you, how much of an IT wonk do you have to be to, to get SharePoint going? And Richard did a talk here, which I was sitting in on, which is pretty cool. It was sort of that meeting between developers and IT people. And you know the meeting that we're talking about. It's the one where the, the the IT people want to learn what the application requirements are, and the developers are trying to figure out what their network looks like and all that stuff. Right? How much of uh, how much IT stuff do you really need to know in terms of your uh, your platform, your network, all that kind of stuff? Right. What, what's that going to do to you? I think uh, in a typical SharePoint project, and this is how a typical SharePoint project is different from a typical plain .NET project that a developer, and especially an architect, needs to know a lot more about IT. Yeah. And a typical infrastructure guy mm-hmm. needs to know a lot more about on the development side as well. And and the boundaries are uh, have, a, have a greater overlap between themselves in a typical SharePoint project. Yeah. Now, so let's say you're, you're starting a SharePoint development uh, site. Do you need to know anything more about security than you would, let's say, if you're just doing an ASP.NET application? Do you need to know, do you have to, what, you know, what are the kinds of things that you need to know that are atypical? Uh, certainly. Uh, SharePoint introduces some additional details around security. Uh, for instance, one of the decisions you'd have to make is, uh, you know, what kind of security you're going to use on your SharePoint site. Uh, is it forms-based, uh, Windows, or something else? And uh, and that depends on the audience you're serving in your site. One, even when you do decide that, uh, then there is this whole concept of site collections and sites and how you intend to break security mm. within those. Uh, so in, by default, a child will in, inherit security from parent, but where exactly do you inherit and what implications will that have on the UI? Uh, and those are the things that you would have to consider other than an ASP.NET project. You wouldn't, wouldn't you have to consider those in a regular ASP.NET project too? I mean, you always have to know whether, what kind of security you're using integrated or not. What about, um, what about, uh, Active Directory? Do you, can you not avoid Active Directory with SharePoint? Is it, is it always going to be? 
Well, it does need an AD to run, but the it end does. users don't have to be AD users. So not every user has to be authenticated in AD. Correct. But there's always got to be an AD present in it. For service accounts behind the scenes, right. Okay, so that that could be a particular sticking point if you've never worked with AD before. Right. Well, and in any typical SharePoint project, you would have a team of people who would be infrastructure AD experts along right. with software development experts, and it's a question of mind merge between them. Right. So what if you're listening to this and you, you want to do SharePoint development and you're not particularly strong in Active Directory, would that be something that you should be checking out? I think as a part of working on a SharePoint project, you will pick those skills on the way. Yeah. Uh, as I would say, as with as it is with any single uh, development project, mm. uh, the, the, your best quality can be your is going to be your ability and your willingness to learn, yeah, and learn from others that are working with you on the project. And just working with others who are experts on this, you're going to pick those things up on the way. And Sam, I mean, there's a presumption here that this is a new technology to you, and there is some things you need to learn no matter what. Exactly. Are we setting the bar a little high here? Do you have to expect to do development in SharePoint? Anytime you build a SharePoint site, how much can you just build right out of the box? Well, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I, I think it depends on the customer, but sometimes a customer asks for a hammer and we give them a plier because that's mm. all it does out of the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some customers, they'll bang a nail with a plier and they're just happy with it. But usually, it, in my experience, it does happen that every single project you do, there is some level of development that, that you just can't avoid in most involved projects. So mm. it, it, it does happen that you do end up doing some level of development. Now, development doesn't necessarily mean C-sharp or VB.net, yeah. but there is some level of complexity that you end up dealing with anyway. When we did the uh, the videos uh, for Franklin's Net, we did a, two, a SharePoint 2007 video. I think we did like nine hours of video, mm-hmm. or nine or ten hours. Yeah, There was uh, at times where you dropped into C-sharp and were doing some components to do things that couldn't be done and um, in particular, I remember seeing some real crazy code dealing with XML and and other stuff that you know was not at all. I remember we were saying it's not at all intuitive, right? Uh, what's the scenario look like for developers now? Um, now that we're I don't know about a year later. Well, there have been some community tools that have been introduced that make that picture better, but uh, you should you still shouldn't expect the level of comfort that you are in, say, regular ASP.NET. Yeah. Now, we recorded a DNR TV show recently in mm-hmm. which we developed a Silverlight application in SharePoint. Yeah. And in that, I demoed away, like, you know, when I was developing for SharePoint and my .NET counterparts would hit F5 and a breakpoint would get hit, mm. uh, I was feeling left out and feeling jealous, frankly. <laughs> you know, right. that's a luxury sometimes in SharePoint yeah. because you put your DLL in the GAC, you don't have to, but usually we do. The breakpoint doesn't get hit, and it's just painful, and you do IS resets. So in that so video... There is, what you're saying is there isn't an integrated debugger when you're working with SharePoint tools. You can't use the debugger. Well, you can, but it's cumbersome. It's a little hokey. Uh, you attach you to attach the... You attach the process. Right. Yeah. And then which process? Because there right. could be two, three W3WPs, or if it's a Silverlight app, you attach to iExplore. Uh, it's, it's cumbersome. And yeah. sometimes the breakpoint doesn't get hit. Because the DLL in the GAC is different from the DLL that you've built. Now, is there is there going to be some stuff in Visual Studio 2010 to help us with that? Well, there is some stuff that Microsoft released for uh, 2008 as well. It's called VACWSS. And then there are some community tools. Like one of the most popular ones is WSP Builder. Mm. Uh, it, that makes the picture a whole lot easier. 
Is that a way that you can uh, develop your components outside of SharePoint and test them and all that stuff and then deploy them? Or Well, not really. But the DNR TV episode that we put together demos a way of doing that. Uh, in the DNR TV episode, I built a Silverlight app, and 99% of it was done outside of SharePoint on a physical machine, and you hit F5 and a breakpoint works, luxury. And then we just put all that in SharePoint, stitch it together, and deploy it as a solution. Yeah. So that approach, for me personally, has worked out very well, and it's been very well received to anybody that I've shown. Okay, let's get back to your list. What, what's, uh, what's the next item? The next item is, when you deploy stuff to SharePoint, always use features and solutions. And features and solutions is a part of the SharePoint uh, administration tool? Right. Solutions are cab files in disguise. They're just renamed as WSP, and they contain a manifest.xml that tells SharePoint what is this solution, what does this solution contain. Uh, and inside the solution, you can have features or you can have certain files that are being deployed. Okay. Now, you could just open a file in Notepad on a SharePoint server and edit it and you'll get the functionality. But that is not the right way of doing it. By deploying stuff as solutions, you'll be able to deploy those reliably on well all web front ends and retract them on all web front ends reliably as well. That okay. is the right way of deploying new functionality. And the alternative is what? Well, this is this is the right way of doing it. So I'd say the alternative is the wrong way of doing it. <laughs> but I mean, if is there any other way to deploy? Well, you could always, if you want, if you're trying to target certain functionality, you could open up Notepad and start editing stuff that is in the twelve hive inside okay. of SharePoint. All right. But that is, it'll it'll work, but it'll be the wrong way of doing things. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next item. So the next item I have is you have to define roles within your IT teams. Uh, and this is important for any single project, but in the case of SharePoint, it's even more important. And and the specific reason is that in a typical IT project, you have developer fairies and infra- infrastructure ogres. <laughs> <laughs> I've met those guys. <laughs> so, and, and they are, uh, you know... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Developer fairies, infrastructure ogres. Yeah, and I'm going to get hate mail. Uh, and and there, is, is, there is generally a turf war between them. Right. But in the case of SharePoint, the turf war is accentuated. Because especially when you're not familiar with the platform. Because there's so much that you can do with SharePoint out of the box through the browser. So the infrastructure guys will obviously ask, well, I don't need to give developers access to production at all. Is that the right solution? And and that's, from an IT perspective, absolutely the mindset I want to be in. You stay right. off the, the production machine. Correct. Use your your, uh, your QA machines and Correct. tell me when you want to migrate up. Correct. But then what it boils down to is, what does the definition of staying off mean? Uh, can I not even use the production application at all? Or maybe... It depends on the situation, but for the most part, uh, you know, it makes sense to limit farm administration access to central administration and the shared service provider and the physical access to servers should be limited to the deployment or the infrastructure teams, but developers should be able to access the application sometimes. Now, I understand it, you know, let's say you've got sensitive data and that may not be a possibility, but when you can create a list using point and click, uh, which will take you 20 seconds, doing the same through a feature is going to take you substantially longer. What was the thing you said in your talk, Richard, um, about you don't want to give the, the IT people never want to give developers access to the production machines, but you should give them access to the logs at least. 
Yeah, well, you need you want to have access to the sort of truth that happened on that machine. So logs, I certainly believe in having access to them. Just not accessing the log directly off the production server, but backing those logs up onto other machines that they can then read from them. I don't mm-hmm. know how you stand on that. Well, absolutely. They should be able to. That's how you would diagnose things in production. Right. But SharePoint sometimes logs in the log files, and sometimes it logs stuff in the event log. Right. And then uh, event log is a little bit harder that somebody has to – well, I guess you could build a process to export those as well. Yeah. Or you could just build into your SharePoint application, eventing, putting it in a log you have access to. Right. A custom log. Absolutely. Right. But then, but then you have the situation of should a developer not even be allowed to activate a feature on a site collection? And I think that's taking things a little too far. Interesting. Well, what happened to the staging area? You know, what happened to our tester, testing right. and staging area versus production? I mean, do we, do you still, is that a possibility in SharePoint development or do you find that most people are just editing, developing right on the production machines? Well, uh, the, in, in projects that are going to succeed in the long run, they would have those environments. Uh, so they would yeah. have a development environment. They would have an integration, staging, and a production environment, like right. any other project. So then it's not an issue, really. You have you have your development and staging environment, and when that works, then you ship it off to the production. Exactly. Now, this is one of the things that you have to be slightly careful about, that when you have these environments, you're deploying stuff between these environments through features and solutions, yeah. rather solutions, features packaged as solutions. Okay. Uh, but... This is where you have to be a little bit careful where a lot of point and click demos that we've seen of SharePoint and we've been impressed with, some of that stuff you have to be aware of the fine print doesn't package well as a solution. Are you saying like paths are hard-coded and XML files buried somewhere that you have to change when you move to... Or you can't change. Or you can't change. Right. As an example... Do they um, go into into the database? Well, uh, let's say even if they were in a database, there would be some hackery. But as an example... Uh, if there's an InfoPath form that is using a data source that is tied to a SharePoint list, uh, changing the path of that list between environments uh, is is very difficult. There's a hack to do it, but of course, you know, there's no official word from Microsoft on whether or not that is supported. Now, shouldn't all paths be exported to the web config file so they can be edited? I mean, right. did, shouldn't... SharePoint do that automatically? Right. And, and, you know, world peace and hunger and loving spouses would be nice too. So, uh, in other words, <laughs> <laughs> but un- unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of situations where it doesn't do that. And, uh, and over time and experience, you learn that there are certain things. Okay. That- so, Microsoft, are you listening? That would be a good idea. I, th- I think they are. And in many situations, so? they are making changes to the product. Uh, which brings me to my next point that okay. in SharePoint projects, prototype first and prototype before you promise. Mm. Uh, so don't actually say, yeah, we can do that. Go right. see if you can build it first. Because right. Sometimes they don't come out the same way that you, you planned. Well, exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, the developer fairies versus infrastructure ogres, the default answers are different. Developer right. fairy says, yes, we can do it. Infrastructure ogres say, no, we can't do it. Right. Right. Those are the default answers. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Excel services. Excel mm. services, you sit in a meeting and say, can I do charts? Sure. Can I do the charts that Excel has? Yes. All right. I'd like a 3D pie chart. Great. And you go to your development machine and you try it. Excel services will turn that 3D pie chart into a 2D pie chart. Now, some business users may be sensitive to that. Right. So before you promise it, try it. Okay. You know, you could you could take a nod from the um, – there's a, a tool in uh, Expression Blend 
where you can sketch. They have these sketch flow things now. And basically, uh, it's a, a style sheet that looks like it's hand-drawn So mm-hmm. for, for WPF. Right. So the whole idea is when you're prototyping, the customer is not looking at it and saying, yeah, but we need to make that button a little bluer. You know, because mm-hmm. you know you're you're proto- you're trying to figure out the flow of the application, and they're saying yes, but and putting these fine details on it. Yeah. So maybe that's an idea is when you're when you're doing a SharePoint uh, prototype. Yeah. Is to just make a really bad looking style sheet and use <laughs> <laughs> and use that. Well, that's so a good you, trick. Yeah. So you can always say, oh no, this is not even close to the final product. Yeah. Or just sort of the wireframe look, right? You don't if you make it too pretty, they'll focus on the pretty. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And that's not what they should be focusing on in the prototype. Yeah. Well, one of the tendencies I've seen in a, in, in a lot of SharePoint developers and architects is that they uh, tend to put the blame on the business user. And even if it's deserved or not. Well, that's because they're dumb, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, t- I'm just kidding. Well, you know, that's what I'm I totally like to say. Kidding. Don't if, talk if you to make me. an idiot-proof system, they'll just come up with a bigger idiot. I think I heard that from you guys. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. They'll find so, a better idiot. Yeah. So well, I, you know, I mean, I'm kidding, but the, given an input box mm-hmm. and the ability to put whatever they want in there, the user's going to put stuff that you had no idea. Exactly. You had no idea they would ever do that. Exactly. And you just have to plan for that, right? As, yeah, as much as you can, you tolerate the fact that they're going to do stuff you didn't expect. They'll find a bigger idiot. I agree. Yeah. So, All right. Well, anyway. So. We digress. So, um... Another another point I'd li- uh, like to make about SharePoint projects that is uh, perhaps a little unique to SharePoint projects is uh, it is okay and rather advisable to use community tools. Oh, so what do you mean by community tools? Stuff that is open source, available on CodePlex or somebody's blog, stuff that you get source code with that you can take further. Now this is, you know, goes against the, the, the not goes against, but it's in it's sort of opposite of the SharePoint model, which is, you know, we want stuff that's off the shelf, Microsoft, we're going to pay dearly for it. We want to pay our consultants a lot of money because they know what they're doing. What, you know, as opposed to, you know, the, the other free options that are out there that are more right. like SharePoint. Well, I would say nobody wants to pay more money than necessary. Yeah. But uh, generally, companies feel more comfortable if a product is backed by another company that right. they can sue just in case. Right. Right. So uh, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. In the case of SharePoint, uh, you know, one of the when you're writing code against SharePoint, so assuming that you have the ability to deploy code to the server, right? Uh, there's an object called SP Site, and one of the overloads of SP Site accepts SP User Token. So you can impersonate to any token uh, without having their password. Ooh. Right. Wow. Well, yeah. that's what I said too. Wow. But then you, if you consider it's not that big a deal because by then you are deploying code to the server, you, I guess you have some level of access already. Okay. Now, another, another example is with, with three or four lines of code, you can reveal the passwords for application pool accounts. And one of the application pool accounts is the farm account because it runs central administration. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, TechNet docs even tell you that that account needs to be a domain admin, which, by the way, is incorrect. That doesn't need to be a domain admin. In fact, it shouldn't be. But imagine that there's a third-party company giving you code, and you don't have access to the source code. Uh, can you be absolutely sure that they're not doing anything hokey? Hmm. That's a good point. Or stuff that's actually sneaky, like going through and pulling information out of your system. Right. And 
I, I would say, well, most of the reputable companies won't. Uh, but would you say that uh, community tools where you have access to the source code and you can hit control shift F and search over the project for SP user token right. and just see if they're impersonating anywhere and what exactly are they doing with it? Yeah, so the sor- having the source is a huge advantage in that scenario. Well, exactly. as long as it works, you know. That's- well, there are some fantastic community tools. I- I- I'd like to give a shout out to sure. two of them built actually by the same guy. Uh, one is, uh, the guy's name is Karsten Kutman. He's built WSP Builder and SharePoint Manager at okay. wspbuilder.codeplex.com and spm.codeplex.com. Both of these tools are fairly stable, mm-hmm. uh, fairly bug-free, and uh, like, there's some rough edges here and there, but uh, they are they make you as a SharePoint developer so much more productive mm. that I cannot imagine life without those tools. Wow. So... You just have to use them, really. Cool, and they're free with source. Now, what right. what, is, what does the second one do? We saw the first one at DNR TV. Because the second one came out after we uh, we did the most of the shows. Uh, SharePoint Manager SPM is something, it's a Windows app that you run on the SharePoint server, and it'll show you your entire farm in a tree view. Oh, nice. So with all the application pools and all the features, so you can simply expand it, look at the lists. And one of the things you do in SharePoint is a lot of magic word development. As in, if you're uh, if you want to put something in a document library, you have to give the document library ID. So, you know, hundred is custom list, hundred and ten is document library, yeah. hundred and seven is forms library. How do you remember all this stuff? Uh, in a master pages gallery, I think it's hundred thirteen. You don't remember all of this stuff. You simply open SharePoint Manager and you go to the list and click on the schema tab and look for the ID in the generated schema.xml. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like a great tool. Yeah. And just for those who haven't seen the DNR TV, the uh, WS Builder, what's that all about? WSP Builder is WSP Builder. Uh, is a tool which basically, if whenever you're writing a SharePoint solution in Visual Studio, you would write a uh, class library, you would have an install.bat that gets called as a post-build event of that class library. And then you would have a cab.ddf file that you use makecab.exe to call cab. with cab.ddf as its input parameter, and it'll generate a .wsp file for you. The problem with this approach is that anytime you add a file within your solution, uh, you have to edit the cab.ddf to ensure that it gets included in the solution. So maintaining the two becomes a, a, a big challenge, especially a typical SharePoint project could be 10 or 15 such files. And as you're debugging, developing, you're constantly adding, removing, editing these files. WSP Builder, when you run it, it simply goes over the structure of your project and it turns everything into a solution for you ready to go. Yeah, very cool. All right. So like it repackages the, the things you've built and, and makes them into solutions. Right. Absolutely. It, it just makes it, it, it is such a time saver, really. And uh, you could go to dnrtv.com and, and uh, it may be the current show. It may be in the past shows, but look for... Building Silverlight apps with uh, for SharePoint. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the last one we used WSP Builder. Yeah, we did. Okay, what's next on the list? Next on the list is Ninja debugging and monitoring. Hota! <laughs> I didn't know ninjas needed debugging. Yeah, well, the buggy ninjas do. <laughs> okay, so what makes it ninja debugging there, Sahil? Uh, yeah, we heard uh, an interesting comment yesterday here at the conference. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do my ninja knife sound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So uh, we we heard a, 
interesting comment yesterday that debugging is uh, not a skill you want to pick up, right? We heard that yesterday. It was, yeah, it was Bob Martin was talking about the fact that right. yeah, you shouldn't be proud of being good at debugging. His whole idea was you should be good, proud right. at building code that doesn't have bugs. <laughs> All right, and and okay, I I, I understand, and if if I see it from that viewpoint, I agree. Right, that's but, not an excuse not to know how to debug, though. Yeah, yeah. let's face it; you have to go hunt down bugs sometimes. Right, I'd say I'd fix the entire world, but they won't give me the source code for it. <laughs> right, yeah, that it'll never hit your breakpoint either. That too, that's another issue. So. uh I didn't write all of SharePoint, and a lot of people are trying to apply things such as TDD to SharePoint, and right. even they admit that while it can be done, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And all these good development practices that I see serve a good purpose of making me jealous of the other .NET developers. <laughs> so, Because SharePoint stuff just doesn't work? Well, <laughs> uh, I, w- I wouldn't say that it doesn't work, but the development experience isn't that great. Okay. The better way to put it is that as far as the development experience on SharePoint goes, once you get over the gag factor, all kinds of possibilities open up. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. If you're a Silverlight or WPF developer, you've heard that having a single code base for your web and Windows user interface is becoming a hot topic. How about building a Silverlight application and then reusing the XAML and the code behind for a WPF application? Your customers will enjoy the identical user experience, and you will enjoy some free time as you have to write the code for both applications only once. This is not a scenario from the future. The guys from Telerik have developed a line-of-business demo application that shows you how to do it all. The application uses Telerik Silverlight and WPF suites, which represent two almost identical tool sets for building rich web and desktop applications. Both are derived from the same code base and share a common API, allowing nearly complete code reuse between WPF and Silverlight development. You got to check it out. Telerik.com slash sales dashboard. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what's next on the list? So uh, I want to dive a little bit into the Ninja debugging and, and share some tricks that I use all the time. Okay. Uh, w- one of those is that uh, debugging stuff in the GAC is incredibly hard sometimes uh, because breakpoints don't get hit, the PDB and the DLL get out of sync. Hmm. Uh, the simplest way to – there are other ways to fix this as well. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. What you do is that the GAC is really a set of directory structures inside your C Windows assembly, physical directory. Yeah, if you want to go look at them – uh, open up a command line window. Exactly. That's, that's where you'll see it, really. Exactly. And if you copy the PDB file where the DLL is, then the breakpoints do get hit reliably. Yeah. So, but, but that is fixing a problem that we wish we didn't have. Uh, so the ideal way is to follow the development methodology that we demonstrated together on the last DNR TV on Silverlight, where all, where most of your application is done outside and you sort of build a satellite not inside the space shuttle. You build it outside, and then you package it inside the space shuttle and launch it to the moon. Okay. And that is the approach that we had used, that we built almost the entire application outside, and we had leveraged WCF to do so, in which we declared a contract first. We used mock objects that we were sending across the wire, and then that enables a lot of scenarios. You're using your own custom business objects. You can mm-hmm. use .NET RIA services on it. Uh, you know, you can send thick, intelligent business objects across the wire to your Silverlight UI or something else, right? Yeah. And all of those scenarios become enabled 
And then you steal portions out of that project, like your WCS service uh, library, your endpoint, your config file, and, and your Silverlight Zap file, or maybe the, the HTML page that is using JavaScript to call Ajax calls, maybe, right? Whatever it might be. And you package all of that in SharePoint so you aren't debugging and developing this inside a virtual machine that is running IS, SQL Server, MOS, Expression Blend, yeah. Visual Studio, WSP Builder. It's That's not my idea. That seems to be the, the real de- development nightmare is that you have to run all this stuff inside a virtual machine and it just slogs down. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. It can never be as pleasant as working on a real machine. Absolutely. Well, now, now, why wouldn't you just set up a, a machine just for developing your SharePoint app, just one machine for that app? And, and do everything on that machine. Right. So why won't you have a physical machine dedicated right. that you would develop SharePoint on? It, it just makes things a whole lot harder. Uh, because? When you are developing for SharePoint, sometimes there is so much configuration that you have to do here and there all across the site that it is just hard to X-copy all of that back as a backup. So if Oh, I see. So so you're, you can always take snapshots and revert back, and that's... Exactly. That's really what you want. Exactly. Sometimes, as another example, that snapshot. Well, wait a minute. There are tools that you can use on a machine to, like, go back, I think is one of them. Ghosting? You, not ghosting. There's one called go back, uh-huh. I think, where you just say, I want to go back to a certain point in time, and it resets everything to that time. Yeah, it's just like a tool that does the same thing that VMs do. It keeps a journal of everything that's been changed, Yeah, and you have a chance to go back to the point before that journal started being taken. Does it require a second machine to act as a master in that go no, back? No, no. Those tools don't. But And you bring up ghosts as well. I mean, that's just another way that I snapshot a machine at a particular point, and I can always get back to that state of the machine. Uh-huh. But I think the more interesting thing to comment on here is this whole idea of you want to be able to snapshot the state of your SharePoint at this point and then make changes to it knowing I could go down a rabbit hole here and rather than try and undo them, it's better to be able to just snap back to the point before you started. Right. That That's a pretty serious philosophy there. Yeah. I mean, and another thing, Scott Hanselman was mentioning downstairs, well, there, there, there is a way in Windows 7 and uh, Windows 2008 R2 to run a VHD as a physical machine. Oh, that's true. And then that may be something that is, and, and it can run 64-bit and, operating. And you can boot it too, I believe. Right. Yeah, as long as you can run it in a journaling mode so that you can be, are able to roll back. That's exactly. the important point. Now, I will say that there are certain developers that do develop for SharePoint on a physical machine. I know at least one of them who swears by it and he likes it. Uh, some of us like pain also. <laughs> <laughs> There's no accounting for taste. Yeah. And Annie Lennox and some Ooh. sweet dreams are made of this. Oh, boy. Some of them uh, want to be abused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yuck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where's the sound effects show, I think. <laughs> uh, any more uh, particular debugging techniques, or is that yeah. pretty your key thing? Another one that I want to mention before we move off is, uh, is uh, all the standard techniques that you would use in ASP.NET are still applicable here. I'll yeah. mention two that I've found particularly helpful for SharePoint. Okay. One of them is the trace ability. The trace.axd and the tracing capability of ASP.NET. Yep. Extremely useful. Yep. The second one I'll, I'll dive further into. Uh, there's an interesting node inside of the web.config on any ASP.NET app called the system.health monitoring. Mm-hmm. And let's say it's a production app and you're having a very hard time debugging what's going on with that app. Mm-hmm. And let's say you want to trap how often does the application pool recycle, for yeah. instance. So uh, in order to do that, you can just out of the box, you can add a little code 
pointed to the ASP.DB.MDF, and the little code goes inside a web.config, so it doesn't really affect your application. Mm -hmm. And then you can write a simple, it'll start logging whenever your application pool is recycling on any particular web front end. This is actually something that I've demoed in an article that I've written for Code Magazine that should be out soon. Yeah, so now this is configuration-style debugging, where you just set the machine into a debug mode, and it gives you logging of... uh, areas where you may be having problems of any particular event in asp.net or any particular exception or Mm -hmm. anything else you can custom write in as well incredible for debugging production scenarios yeah very cool so very cool so the next thing i would like to mention is uh reverse engineer sharepoint Hmm. Uh, that is the best way to learn sharepoint really well, yes. you know, that sounds easy and nice, and I'd like world peace in a you know, spouse <laughs> that doesn't argue or whatever it was you said, but <laughs> how on earth do you reverse engineer SharePoint? What do you mean by that? Okay, so like, you know, uh, over the ages, a lot of people have misinterpreted religion uh, with the commandment, you won't put anybody else before me. Uh, but if really, if you want to learn the true uh, word of God, you need to learn one of those ancient languages. Yeah, uh, it's similar. Reading those languages is harder, but that'll give you the true word. The thing with SharePoint is that there are a lot of there is a lot of incorrect documentation, believe it or not, on blogs, of course, but also on MSDN and TechNet. Really? Yeah. If is you, it because a lot of it pertains to older versions that are now out of date or done differently? Uh, that's you know, my biggest problem with going and finding articles online. A yeah. lot of them have no date; they're not dated. And you right. have no idea whether this information is relevant or not. Right. And I, I will say I'm responsible for a little bit, little bit of this myself as well. That I blog what I learn. And when I blog something, I write an article on it with the best intentions that's going to help somebody later. But then there, later on, there's a better way of doing things. Right. And then I never go and update my previous, because, yeah. you know, we have jobs to do. Sure, sure, yeah. This is the inherent problem with the whole blog model is that you, you the, my first question is always, is this applicable to the version I'm using and yeah. you know, still relevant today in, in time? Right. Yeah. But even if you look at the TechNet and MSD and Docs, now many of them are good, uh, but you look at the comments below that that the community has left and you'll find many of them have some inaccuracies or many of them are simply incomplete. Mm, okay. So the best way to learn SharePoint is A, use Reflector, open it up, you know, reverse compile the code. I guess that violates licensing to some point, but we're not making well, I mean, money off of this. You're looking with Reflector. You're you're not recompiling and selling it as shit. Exactly. Product, you know? Exactly. So In fact, we learning. are probably going to make the product better because we can support it better. Then, right? Yeah. So uh, hopefully, the Microsoft lawyers won't come and you know knock my kneecaps out for oh, that. I hear the black helicopter. Oh crap! Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects. <laughs> So, they're coming down the building now. You're scaring me now. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just open it up, open stuff up in Reflector, uh, open uh, Visual Notepad and drag drop feature.xml into it out of the out of the box features, mm-hmm. drag drop schema.xml for the out of the box lists, mm. and just try and learn how Microsoft did it. And that is the best possible way to to learn. Uh, it's you know the SharePoint is very black boxy, as you know very well, Richard, because you were working on some things with Strange Loop, trying to figure out how what the heck they were doing, and 
just couldn't figure it out. Yeah, it is very resistant. It's not like you can actually go in and look at the source, but like I said, yeah. tools like Reflector and looking at the configuration of files, anything that's text, yeah. digging into it, you start to get a feel for what's going on in there. But without a doubt, there's some parts of SharePoint that are completely opaque. Yeah. Oh, they're obfuscated. Some right. of them are obfuscated. Yeah, so you yeah. can't, yeah. So yeah. that just means it's a little bit harder. Right. But as I said earlier, once you get over the gag factor, all kind of possibilities open up. <laughs> okay. So. All right. So, uh, the, the next thing, uh, I'd like to mention is, uh, try and avoid 32 bit if you can. 64 bit all the way? 64 bit if you can. And now it's 64 bit for the SharePoint servers or 64 bit for the development environment? Like what matters? Excellent question. Uh, so there are a lot of fine points over here to cover. Uh, let's say that you, the way a 32-bit operating system works is that two gigabytes of your memory, which is the four 16 bits, are allocated for the OS, and right. the rest of the 16 are allocated for your programs. And within the rest of the 16, also you have the force say eight eight uh, the, the force eight are reserved for stuff that gets stored on the stack. And if any program wishes to allocate more memory than that, then they would allocate memory and store a pointer on the stack. So you really get two gigs of RAM, even if you have four installed for a 32-bit operating you system. You get two gigs, and on top of that, you get 640K for your value types. The OS maybe get two gigs, but for SharePoint, it's going to be less than that. Because any four gig 32-bit machine, you only get about 3.2 to 3.5 and then two's lopped off for the OS. Plus video card memory too, right? Yeah. It depends on the computer. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the machine. But you, just, you start doing the math here. And what you're really telling me is SharePoint doesn't get enough memory out of a 32-bit machine. Right. It needs the memory of a 64-bit machine. Right. Plus, isn't RAM like a, a dollar, a terabyte now or Who something? Can, right. It's, it's ridiculous so cheap. cheap. Yeah. If you can run the 64-bit OS, throw eight gigs of RAM in there. Right. SharePoint's going to be a whole bunch happier. There are lots of motherboards that are that where they used to only support four gigs of RAM. Now they're mm -hmm. supporting sixteen, and that's become standard. Right on server. Well, the i7 support like forty-eight gigabytes of RAM. Right. So, RAM is cheap. Get as much as you can. Run with sixty-four bit. Right. But the flip side of that is that uh, when you have uh, okay, so let me complete that thought. So you have six forty k available for your value types, and if you don't have enough memory, what happens is that the application pool will recycle, and what Ew. that. Yeah. That's bad. And then the next hit to SharePoint is going to recompile the ASP.NET app, and the perceived user performance is going to be slower and slower and slower. It'll be extremely slow. Bad. So just go with 64-bit and avoid this problem. No. 64-bit OS. 64-bit OS, right. right. And now that's on the servers themselves. Does it matter on the development side? No, on the development side, it flips around. Because what happens in a 64-bit operating system is that earlier you had... 8 plus 8 to address your memory. So this is called as a segmented word. Now you are accessing in 64-bit, you have something called as a very long segmented word to access memory that is in a 64-bit uh, spectrum, right? So you can address more memory, which is good. But the downside of that is that your resolution on asking for that memory goes down. So as an example, the memory allocation is more spatial. You're allocating larger chunks of memory as you go. There's a simple way to verify that. Uh, you know, just open SharePoint HTTP to your blank site template on a 32-bit machine and on a 64-bit machine. For the same operation, the 32-bit machine w3w3wp.ex is going to consume about 80 KB of memory, whereas on a 64-bit machine, it's going to go to like 300 KB. All right. So you're saying develop on a 32-bit OS? Correct. But deploy on a 64-bit OS? Right. As of now. And there are some fine points to this. Yeah. 
Uh, on a 32-bit machine when you're developing, most of the stuff is you're doing it in .NET. Just check the checkbox for any CPU, and you're set. We'll turn it from any CPU to 64-bit only for compile, and then it'll, or to 32-bit only for compile. Like, what, it, what should it be set to? For for some uh, extremely borderline scenarios, you're going to have to develop for 64-bit. But okay. for the most part, just check any CPU, and you're okay. Okay. I mean, I, I like... Uh, certainly when I'm building ASP.NET apps these days, I love my machine, my servers to run 64-bit, but I always mark my apps as 32-bit only because Correct. I just find it more reliable. That's Re- very true. Reliable. I do it the same way. And, and another, I think, I think another big point over here is that if, because of the more spatial nature of 64-bit memory, you're consuming more. Yeah. So if you're running everything on a virtual machine, if you have a laptop on which you can allocate 8 gigabytes to your virtual machine, go with 64-bit. Yeah, but, but how often are you actually going to need that? If you can compile right. your app as 32-bit and it's running in, in an 8-gig, 64-bit OS, right. you're going to get 4 gigs for your 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 app. Exactly. Are you really? If, a, if it's a 32-bit app, do you really have access to all that RAM if it's running in a 64-bit OS? Well, you certainly do with ASP.NET. Well, you would make... ASP.NET is really what's running. Yeah. And that's 64-bit. Well, you would make everything 64-bit. Yeah, but you, you compile your DLLs as 32-bit. Yeah. You still have access to 4 gigs of RAM. That's your limit. I am. I lost you guys. Yeah, I, I, I'm lost too. If you compile a DLL as 32-bit, that that DLL can only exist within the 32-bit RAM space. That's right. But that RAM space is now virtualized within the 64-bit space. Yeah, right. It's Windows on Windows, so you get four gigs mm-hmm. for it. Oh, I see. So, so the the constraint on I see. So the constraint right. on a 32-bit OS for your application isn't that it can can't address the memory it's that the os doesn't give it the memory mm-hmm. right because the os is using that memory too yeah where when we can run our operating systems in 64-bit now we have our this 32-bit space that's just for our app and we have a lot more money to work in without the weirdness of yeah. running in true 64-bit all the yeah. way right so a 32-bit application the whole process has access to four real gigs of ram mm-hmm. that's i get it now one other that's thing awesome. i want to mention is that the next version of sharepoint 2010 is 64-bit only but hopefully by the time we're full swing developing for the next version of SharePoint, A, development tools will be a little bit better, mm-hmm. and B, laptops will be a little bit more powerful. So, you know, if you want to run 64-bit even in your dev environments, if you can do that today, go for it. But laptops today are just not powerful enough yeah, for that. In the 2010, and then what we're really, when we say 2010, we really mean 2011 context. We're seeing, I mean, even they're even talking about Office being 64-bit, right? Like 64-bit is going to take over. It's going to, in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. That's it's so much better. I don't think it is so much better, I but was, it, it's not so much Well, for the thing, for the reasons that we were just mentioning, the, the, the space, the RAM space, that's what I mean. Yeah. I was actually thinking, you know, if, if Office goes to 64-bit, applications such as Access and Excel will become so much nicer. Why do you think that? Well, because they can, you know, six, the biggest advantage of 64-bit machines. Is that what you say? Because they're memory hogs? Well, they, they handle a lot of data. Like, okay, let's pick a non-Microsoft app, Adobe Photoshop. If you're yeah, working with Adobe very Audition. large PSDs, right. Yeah, but the, those, both those apps, Audition and Photoshop, clearly can show utilizations that use more than four gigs of RAM. Yeah. Video editing software, that kind of stuff. That's another one. Yeah. I am terrified at the idea that I'll have a Word doc more than four gigs. I, I'm, I'm Depends on who's buddy. written it. I'm with you. I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there's issues here with how much memory are we wasting. Right. But again, if we go out a couple of years from now, yeah. where the standard deploy of a laptop is going to be four cores and 16 gigs of RAM, 
Who cares? Okay, right. we can be a little sloppier with well, you know, and a 500 gig flash. Uh, memory, SSD. love, sex, and money more the better. Uh, okay, very nice. So you know, that, that is, memory is cheap. It's okay to waste it. Yeah, so is sex. <laughs> <laughs> I think no we're a little off topic here. What's the next point there, Sahil? Okay, next point is if you can pick Kerberos over NTLM. Okay, now this is probably the first time the word Kerberos has been mentioned on .NET Rocks in 400-some-odd shows. <laughs> and I know that even most ASP.NET developers have no freaking idea what Kerberos is, so just fill us in. Okay, the first time I heard the word Kerberos, I thought it was a tropical fruit. <laughs> <laughs> but it, or, a, or a drink. Yeah, but One it turned out not drinks. to be. Yeah. <laughs> Kerberos with ice, please. Yeah. Smirnoff like some Kerberos, Kerberos with ice, please. <laughs> yeah. I'll make two of those. Yeah. So, so what uh, is this thing? Uh, so, you know, when internet was new, people, it was created to share content. Yeah. Then people started creating interactive apps. Then people said, well, some of the data is sensitive, so let's log in, you know, have a username, password. And then they got more than five users and they went, oh! And then, or, or rather, somebody sniffed the password and it was a great joke until somebody got in trouble. Right. So then came out, people came out with uh, various al- algorithms to basically protect this stuff. So let me ask you guys a question. What is 2 multiplied by 5 multiplied by 7 multiplied by 10? 7,000. Come on. 700. All right, 2 multiplied by 5 multiplied by oh. 7 multiplied by 10. 1,400. Shit, you're bad at 700. Math. I did? 770. Okay. <laughs> Wait a minute. 2, multi- five, two multiplied by 5. All right, maybe I screwed up, but yeah. fine. We agree that it's around 700-ish. Right? <laughs> I think it's almost exactly a 700-ish. Yes. Okay. I thought it was 700. Yeah, it is 700. You're right. Okay, now, second math question, which is about similar, is... What are the various prime numbers you need to multiply to get 704? Yeah, several. No, no, the, the second question is a lot harder, is my yeah. point. Okay. So this is an example of a one-way algorithm where going from A to B is easier, but going from B to A is, a, is harder, right? And this is called as, uh, you know, internet security is based on such algorithms. So Microsoft came out with NTLM, NTLAN Manager, where let's say, Carl, I'm sending you a username password, but I don't want Richard to sniff it on the way. So instead of sending him the password, I'll, I'll create a one-way algorithm. You have the algorithm and the password. I have the algorithm and the password. So instead of sending you the actual password, I'll send you the encrypted version of it. Right. So even if Richard sniffs it, he cannot decrypt it. But the issue is now Richard can always sniff the encrypted version and play it back to you and pretend he's me. Right. So in NTLM v1, what happens is before I send you the encrypted version, you send me an 8-bit number based on which I will encrypt. So it's a random number. Okay. Uh, and, and so this way, there's a lower chance that he's going to have both the random number and the encryption. Uh, but, but then he could use brute force to get around it. It's only it. an 8-bit number. It, it's only 8-bit. tries, he could... Exactly. So NTLM v2 is a little bit better that they just introduce more back and forth in it and, and bigger numbers so you have lesser of this problem. Okay. But NTLM introduces a few issues. Let's say somehow my password gets compromised. Uh, there is no way to revoke it, right? You have to, the server has to know that something happened and all the servers on your network will have to know that something happened, that, that, that this password was compromised. Right. Uh, or another issue is that you don't have the ability as a server to pass my the client's identity to another server on the network, right? Okay. 
So Kerberos gets around those issues. Kerberos was something that was invented by uh, the the engineers at MIT, uh, and to my disappointment, didn't turn out to be a tropical drink. And uh, the way it works is that when you log on to any machine in the morning that is Windows 2000 or better, assuming that you have Kerberos enabled, uh, you provide a username, password, and domain. The request goes to the domain controller, and the domain controller will give you a TGT, ticket granting ticket. And the TGT is similar to a stamp that you would have on the back of your hand when you walk into a bar. So somebody's checked your identity, given you that stamp. Now, this stamp allows you to do certain things. So you, when you order a drink, the bartender is going to ask for this TGT and he's going to give you a session ticket. Now, I'm, I've oversimplified this picture, but still, with a session ticket, with this ticket, TGT, I can order a drink, but I can't, can't go dance on the table, right? So it allows me to do certain things in that organization. So I request something from the service server and it grants me the rights to do that. Now, the advantage of Kerberos over NTLM is that A, I can revoke somebody's identity centrally. But that comes with the disadvantage that uh, you have a single point of failure, that is the domain controller, but then you can have PDC and BDC. Uh, but you have to have a domain for this to work. This, this so is, Kerberos is not only encryption, but authentication and authorization all in one? Well, yeah, what you're really talking about here is Active Directory. Active Directory, Active Directory does is that. dependent on Kerberos. Exactly. So you need a, a domain control. And there is both authentication and authorization going on. In, in So Kerberos does all three. And it also does the encryption. It, it, both NTLM and Kerberos will do encryption. Okay. Uh, but Kerberos has a central authority maintaining the user's identities. And they're... And, and it's just issuing tickets that are flo- floating across I your see. network. Yeah. So you, the problem, real problem with NTLM is that you're constantly reauthenticating. Yeah. They don't have the concept of a ticket. So they don't it, have a concept. This of is a like I said, it happened back in, in, in server 2000. When we got Active Directory, it was this idea of here's your token. Yeah. Go play with your token. But what if somebody sniffs your token and then uses that to impersonate you? You can revoke it centrally. But, number one. Yeah, Secondly, but you don't want to happen in the first place, do you? Okay. But with, you have two tokens. You have a TGT ticket granting ticket. And a token is regenerated by the service server every time you request for a service. So even if it is compromised, it's only for a very small time. I and see. also it can be revoked soon as you detect that it has right. been compromised. It, 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 yeah. It, this all comes down to Active Directory is the usual way that people implement Kerberos. Yeah. How does this affect SharePoint? What are we choosing here, really? So so uh, one of the – of course, one of the issues with Kerberos is that it needs an AD to work. So it's not going to work over the internet. And right. also Firefox and Safari will insist on using NTLM. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there are ways to get around that. You use, uh, you know, client certs or card space over the internet, and then it can translate into a Kerberos identity. The reason it affects SharePoint is that in which situation do I use Kerberos versus NTLM is, is, uh, a little confusing. Uh, you know, you have to make so many decisions. From what you just said, you should never use NTLM. Uh, sometimes you have to right. over and the internet. If you don't have the flexibility of using client certs, or if your client is Safari, then you have to. Right. Right. So wouldn't it be nice if there was an authentication mechanism that said, figure it out. Don't bother me with this stuff. Just figure it out. Yeah. And that's called as negotiate. Right. Called what? Negotiate. Negotiate. Right. Negotiate. Yes. <laughs> okay. Like that's al- what he said. Algorithm, right? Yes, that or is, is what I said. Negotiate. You negotiate. Figured. All right. <laughs> Fine. So you configure it to negotiate, which really says use Active Directory if you can, right? NTLM if you must. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and and when you set a SharePoint site to use Kerberos, really you're setting it to negotiate. Oh, okay. Negotiate. Or whichever word. Yeah, that's right. Negotiate. Okay. All right. And uh, <laughs> the way it works is that when a browser hits a server, the first request it will send is an anonymous request. And the, and the server, SharePoint server, will say, uh, I can't let you in with an anonymous request, so here's an HTTP 401, but I do accept Kerberos and NTLM. And then the browser will say, yeah, here's a Kerberos ticket, or yeah, here's an NTLM uh, token. So the browsers are all smart enough to handle this negotiation. Well, not all browsers Not all are, browsers. Not, you know, Internet Explorer is able to say, yeah, okay, here's a Kerberos ticket. But Firefox would say, here's an NTLM right. authentication. So one of the tips I'd like to share is that in setting this up on SharePoint, one of the tools that I found extremely useful, and setting up Kerberos on SharePoint is not easy. Uh, it's not easy because you set SPNs and it's, there's no UI that, that tells mm-hmm. you where, if they're set properly or not. Right. There are command line utilities to do it. Uh, it, the, the, the tools are, is the IS, uh, resource kit. Okay. IIS resource kit. Yes. Okay. So it, it has simple tools like, uh, auth diag, yeah. where you can import, work like as if you were a browser. Auth diag. Uh, authentication diagnostics. Okay. Auth diag. Okay. And uh, you can send a request as any browser. So you'd say whether I'm using the, you can enforce the authentication level. Uh, you can pretend you're under HTTPS, give a username, password, and it'll give you exact the exact HTTP trace behind the scenes. Hmm. Or you can just say, you know, check my Kerberos installation. Hmm. Or sometimes you land into an organization where they've configured the servers in a lockdown manner. So the way Microsoft ships them, they've locked them down further. Huh. And uh, and sometimes SharePoint doesn't work on those further lockdowns, huh. right? Uh, many organizations have such a standard that they won't use inet pub www root. Wow. They won't put stuff on the C drive. You know they have yeah. very, and they've uh, removed uh, system account on the C windows or C program files, right? And they do that for security. Right. And this tool will go through all the files also, and it'll tell you if the right accounts have the right access on oh, all those cool. files. That's nice. So yeah. there, you know, this uh, this tool has been incredibly helpful to me in uh, in in setting up SharePoint. And that's easy to just Google and find. Yeah, just go, you'll find it on uh, Microsoft's website. It's called IAS uh, Resource Kit. Okay, yeah. and you can you can find it at the IAS.net website. That's where the resource kit lives. Awesome. What's next? Uh, the next thing I'd like to mention is that understand that a SharePoint project is different from a regular .NET project. Mm. Uh, if if only I had a dime for every time somebody approached me and said, we have the whole thing running, but uh, we just need to give a skin to it. Uh, yeah, right. it. It is possible to brand SharePoint 2007. It is easier to brand SharePoint 2007 than it was 2003, yeah. but it is not easy still. Uh, as an example, a typical core.css is almost 5,000 lines. There wow. are 40-ish content placeholders on a master page. Oh, my God. And there are three different master pages you need to worry about. Man. So it is more complex than an ASP.NET project. So certain things that are easy in ASP.NET are difficult here and vice versa. You told, you showed us in, in the DVD thing that we did, you showed us a website. You brought us to one that looked amazing. Yeah. And you said, this is a SharePoint site. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. What so, was, do you remember what that site was? Well, there are many now. Uh, one of the ones that I like a lot is uh, conservation.org. Okay. Uh, that, that's a very nicely done site. But there are so many others by okay. now. Uh, well, are there any CSS editing tools that will help you uh, with that? SharePoint Designer. Okay. Uh, and uh, 
it's still not easy with it. Yeah. It's still not easy with but it. Are there, are there better ones? You sort of have to use SharePoint Designer for this purpose. You do? You do, because that's the way you would edit a content database. Okay. So you have to use SharePoint. So it's not as easy as just taking the CSS into another editor, modifying Hell no. it, and Hell no. bringing it back. You know, all those nice-looking <laughs> SharePoint sites you see out there? Yeah. There are probably some uh, 12-year-old girl in China with bleeding fingers that made that happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a shame. But, I mean, oh, you get my, my point. How sensitive can you get? Yeah. You, it can be done, but it's hard. It's harder than an ASP.NET project, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's easier than SharePoint 2003, and hopefully it'll be better even going forward. Okay. So we're, gonna, we're, we're just about to wrap it up. Is there, is there, how many more items do you have there? Well, I'd like to uh, leave with one last item. Okay. Like, you know, you hear uh, Hollywood movies which say no animals were hurt in filming this movie, <laughs> your solution packages need to say no Microsoft files were hurt in building your solution. Okay. So in other words, you want to leave all the original files alone. Right. Don't touch them. Even though, I mean, we should go look at them when we're trying to learn. Yeah. But never edit them. Yeah. Uh, same applies for the content database. I, Are you I like, talking about the XML files and the config files and things? I mean, you have to edit those, don't you? Oh, well, the out-of-the-box files, you don't touch them. It's okay, okay to edit the web.config, but that's that's about it. Don't right. touch beyond that. Okay. Uh, I, I like to say, that, and this applies to the content database as well, uh, I like to say when you're architecting and when you're learning, it's okay to look. Yeah. Look, but don't touch. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sahil, that's uh, that's a good place to leave the show on. So, wow, this has been great. Thank you. Uh, you're a font of SharePoint knowledge, and I truly appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.